Introduction, Part 3, of The Worst Journey in the World, Volume 1, by Apsley Jerry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction, Part 3. They were prevented from reaching the record by a series of most violent blizzards, and, indeed, Cape Crozier is one of the windiest places on earth, but they proved beyond doubt that a back door to the Adélie Penguin's rookery existed by way of the slopes of Mount Terror behind the Knoll. Early the next year another party reached the record all right, and while exploring the neighbourhood looked down over the eight hundred feet precipice which forms the snout of Cape Crozier. The sea was frozen over, and in a small bay of ice formed by the cliffs of the barrier below were numerous little dots which resolved themselves into emperor penguins. Could this be the breeding-place of these wonderful birds? If so, they must nurse their eggs in midwinter, in unimagined cold and darkness. Five days more elapsed before further investigation could be made, for a violent blizzard kept the party in their tents. On October 18th they set out to climb the high-pressure ridges which lie between the level barrier and the sea. They found that their conjectures were right. There was the colony of emperors. Several were nursing chicks, but all the ice in the Ross Sea was gone, only the small bay of ice remained. The number of adult birds was estimated at four hundred, the number of living chicks was thirty, and there were some eighty dead ones. No eggs were found. Several more journeys were made to this spot, while the discovery was in the south, generally in the spring, and the sum total of the information gained came to something like this. The Emperor is a bird which cannot fly, lives on fish which it catches in the sea, and never steps on land even to breed. For a reason which was not then understood, it lays its eggs upon the bare ice, sometime during the winter, and carries out the whole process of incubation on the sea ice, resting the egg upon its feet, pressed closely to a patch of bare skin in the lower abdomen, and protected from the intense cold by a loose falling lappet of skin and feathers. By September 12th, the earliest date upon which a party arrived, all the eggs which were not broken or addled were hatched, and there were then about a thousand adult emperors in the rookery. Arriving again on October 19th, a party experienced a ten days blizzard, which confined them during seven days to their tents, but during their windy visit they saw one of the most interesting scenes in natural history. This story must be told by Wilson, who was there. The day before the storm broke, we were on an old outlying cone of Mount Terror, about 1,300 feet above the sea. Below us lay the Emperor Penguin rookery on the bay ice, and Ross Sea, completely frozen over, was a plain of firm white ice to the horizon. There was not even the lane of open water, which usually runs along the barrier cliff, stretching away as it does, like a winding thread, to the east and out of sight. No space or crack could be seen with open water. Nevertheless, the emperors were unsettled, owing, there can be no doubt, to the knowledge that bad weather was impending. The mere fact that the usual canal of open water was not to be seen along the face of the barrier meant that the ice in Ross Sea had a southerly drift. This in itself was unusual, and was caused by a northerly wind with snow, the precursor here of a storm from the southwest. The sky looked black and threatening, the barometer began to fall, and before long down came snowflakes on the upper heights of Mount Terror. All these warnings were an open book to the Emperor Penguins, and if one knew the truth, there probably were many others too. They were in consequence unsettled, and although the ice had not yet started moving, the Emperor Penguins had. 
a long file was moving out from the bay to the open ice, where a pack of some one or two hundred had already collected about two miles out, at the edge of a refrozen crack. For an hour or more that afternoon we watched this exodus proceeding, and returned to camp, more than ever convinced that bad weather might be expected. Nor were we disappointed, for on the next day we woke to a southerly gale, and smother of snow and drift which effectually prevented any one of us from leaving our camp at all. This continued without intermission all day and night till the following morning, when the weather cleared sufficiently to allow us to reach the edge of the cliff which overlooked the rookery. The change here was immense. Ross Sea was open water for nearly thirty miles. A long line of white pack-ice was just visible on the horizon from where we stood, some eight hundred to nine hundred feet above the sea. Large sheets of ice were still going out and drifting to the north, and the migration of the emperors was in full swing. There were again two companies waiting on the ice at the actual water's edge, with some hundred more tailing out in single file to join them. The birds were waiting far out at the edge of the open water, as far as it was possible for them to walk, on a projecting piece of ice, the very next piece that would break away and drift to the north. The line of tracks in the snow along which the birds had gone the day before was now cut off short at the edge of the open water, showing that they had gone, and under the ice-cliffs there was an appreciable diminution of the number of emperors left, hardly more than half remaining of all we had seen there six days before. Two days later the emigration was still in full swing, but only the unemployed seemed to have gone as yet. Those who were nursing chicks were still huddled under the ice-cliffs, sheltered as much as possible from the storm. Three days later, October 28th, no ice was to be seen in the Ross Sea. The little bay of ice was gradually being eaten away. The same exodus was in progress, and only a remnant of penguins were still left. Of the conditions under which the Emperor lays her eggs, the darkness and cold and blighting wings, of the excessive mothering instinct implanted in the heart of every bird, male and female, of the mortality and gallant struggles against almost inconceivable odds, and the final survival of some twenty-six per cent of the eggs, I hope to tell in the account of our winter journey, the object of which was to throw light upon the development of the embryo of this remarkable bird, and through it upon the history of their ancestors. As Wilson wrote, The possibility that we have in the Emperor Penguin the nearest approach to a primitive form, not only of a penguin but of a bird, makes the future working out of its embryology a matter of the greatest possible importance. It was a great disappointment to us, that although we discovered their breeding-ground, and although we were able to bring home a number of deserted eggs and chicks, we were not able to procure a series of early embryos, by which alone the points of particular interest can be worked out. To have done this in a proper manner from the spot at which discovery wintered in McMurdo Sound would have involved us in endless difficulties, for it would have entailed the risks of sledge-travelling in midwinter, with an almost total absence of light. It would at any time require that a party of three at least, with full camp equipment, should traverse about a hundred miles of the barrier surface in the dark, and should, by moonlight, cross over with a rope and axe the immense pressure ridges which form a chaos of crevasses at Cape Crozier. These ridges, moreover, which have taken a party as much as two hours of careful work to cross by daylight, must be crossed and recrossed at every visit to the breeding site in the bay. There is no possibility, even by daylight, of conveying over them the sledge or camping kit, and in the darkness of midwinter the impracticability is still more obvious. Cape Crozier is a focus for wind and storm, where every breath is converted, by the configuration of Mounts Erebus and Terror, into a regular drifting blizzard full of snow. 
It is here, as I have already stated, that on one journey or another we have had to lie patiently in sodden sleeping-bags for as many as five and seven days on end, waiting for the weather to change and make it possible for us to leave our tents at all. If, however, these dangers were overcome, there would still be the difficulty of making the needful preparations from the eggs. The party would have to be on the scene, at any rate, early in July. Supposing that no eggs were found upon arrival, it would be well to spend the time in labelling the most likely birds, those, for example, that have taken up their stations close underneath the ice-cliffs. And if this were done, it would be easier then to examine them daily by moonlight, if it and the weather generally were suitable. Conditions, I must confess, not always easily obtained at Cape Crozier. But if by good luck things happened to go well, it would by this time be useful to have a shelter built of snow-blocks on the sea-ice, in which to work with the cooking-lamp to prevent the freezing of the egg before the embryo was cut out, and in order that fluid solutions might be handy for the various stages of its preparation. For it must be borne in mind that the temperature all the while may be anything between zero and minus fifty degrees Fahrenheit. The whole work, no doubt, would be full of difficulty, but it would not be quite impossible, and it is with a view to helping those to whom the opportunity may occur in future, that this outline has been added of the difficulties that would surely beset their path. We shall meet the Emperor penguins again, but now we must go back to the discovery. Lying off Hut Point, with the season advancing, and twenty miles of ice between her and the open sea. The prospects of getting out this year seemed almost less promising than those of the last year. An abortive attempt was made to soar a channel from the halfway point. Still, life to Scott and Wilson in a tent at Cape Royds was very pleasant after sledging, and the view of the blue sea, framed in the tent door, was very beautiful on a morning in January, when the two ships sailed into the frame. Why two? One, of course, was the morning. The second proved to be the Terra Nova. It seemed that the authorities at home had been alarmed at the reports brought back the previous year by the relief ship of the detention of the Discovery, and certain outbreaks of scurvy which had occurred both on the ship and on the sledge journeys. To make sure of relief, two ships had been sent. There was nothing to worry about, but the orders they brought were staggering to sailors who had come to love their ship, with a depth of sentiment which cannot be surprising when it is remembered what we had been through in her, and what a comfortable home she had proved. Scott was ordered to abandon the discovery if she could not be freed in time to accompany the relief ships to the north. For weeks there was little or no daily change. They started to transport the specimens, and make the other necessary preparations. They almost despaired of freedom. Explosions in the ice were started in the beginning of February with little effect. But suddenly there came a change. On the 11th, amidst intense excitement, the ice was breaking up fast. The next day the relief ships were but four miles away. On the 14th the shout of, "'The ships are coming, sir!' brought out all the men racing to the slopes above a rival bay. Scott wrote, "'The ice was breaking up right across the strait, and with a rapidity which we had not thought possible. No sooner was one great flow borne away than a dark streak cut its way into the solid sheet that remained, and carved out another, to feed the broad stream of pack which was hurrying away to the northwest. I have never witnessed a more impressive sight. The sun was low behind us, the surface of the ice-sheet in front was intensely white, and in contrast the distant sea and its leads looked almost black. The wind had fallen to a calm, and not a sound disturbed the stillness about us. Yet in the midst of this peaceful silence was an awful unseen agency, rending that great ice-sheet as though it had been naught but the thinnest paper. 
We knew well by this time the nature of our prison bars. We had not plodded again and again over those long, dreary miles of snow without realising the formidable strength of the great barrier which held us bound. We knew that the heaviest battleship would have shattered itself ineffectually against it, and we had seen a million-ton iceberg brought to rest at its edge. For weeks we had been struggling with this mighty obstacle, but now, without a word, without an effort on our part, it was all melting away, and we knew that in an hour or two not a vestige of it would be left, and that the open sea would be lapping on the black rocks of Hut Point. Almost more dramatic was the grounding of the discovery of the shoal at Hut Point, owing to the rise of a blizzard immediately after her release from the ice. Hour after hour she lay pounding on the shore, and when it seemed most certain that she had been freed only to be destroyed, and when all hope was nearly gone, the wind lulled, and the waters of the sound, driven out by the force of the wind, returned, and the discovery floated off with a little damage. The whole story of the release from the ice and subsequent grounding of the discovery is wonderfully told by Scott in his book. Some years after this I met Wilson in a shooting lodge in Scotland. He was working upon grouse disease for the Royal Commission which had been appointed, and I saw then for the first time something of his magnetic personality, and glimpses also of his methods of work. He and Scott both meant to go back and finish the job, and I then settled that when they went I would go too, if wishing could do anything. Meanwhile Shackleton was either in the south or making his preparations to go there. He left England in 1908, and in the following Antarctic summer two wonderful journeys were made. The first, led by Shackleton himself, consisted of four men and four ponies. Leaving Cape Royds, where the expedition wintered in a hut, in November, they marched due south on the barrier outside Scott's track, until they were stopped by the eastward trend of the range of mountains, and by the chaotic pressure caused by the discharge of a Brobdingnagian glacier. But away from the main stream of the glacier, and separated from it by the land now known as Hope Island, was a narrow and steep snow-slope, forming a gateway which opened on the main glacier stream. Boldly plunging through this, the party made its way up the Beardmore Glacier, a giant of its kind, being more than twice as large as any other known. The history of their adventures will make anybody's flesh creep. From the top they travelled due south towards the Pole, under the trying conditions of the plateau, and reached the high latitude of 88 degrees, 23 minutes south, before they were forced to turn by lack of food. While Shackleton was essaying the geographical pole, another party of three men under Professor David reached the magnetic pole, travelling a distance of 1,260 miles, of which 740 miles were relay work, relying entirely on man haulage and with no additional help. This was a very wonderful journey, and when Shackleton returned in 1909, he and his expedition had made good. During the same year the North Pole was reached by Peary, after some twelve years of travelling in Arctic regions. Scott published the plans of his second expedition in 1909. This expedition is the subject of the present history. The Terra Nova sailed from the West India Dock, London, on June 1, 1910, and from Cardiff on June 15. She made her way to New Zealand, refitted and restowed her cargo, took on board ponies, dogs, motor sledges, certain further provisions and equipment, as well as such members of her executive officers and scientists as had not travelled out in her, and left finally for the south on November 29, 1910. She arrived in McMurdo Sound on January 4, 1911, and our hut had been built on Cape Evans, and all stores landed in less than a fortnight. Shortly afterwards, the ship sailed. The party which was left at Cape Evans under Scott is known as the Main Party. 
but the scientific objects of the expedition included the landing of a second but much smaller party under Campbell on King Edward VII's land. While returning from an abortive attempt to land here, they found a Norwegian expedition under Captain Roald Amundsen in Nansen's old ship the Fram in the Bay of Wales. Reference to this expedition will be found elsewhere. One member of Amundsen's party was Johansen, the only companion of Nansen on his famous Arctic sledge journey, of which a brief outline has been given above. Campbell and his five companions were finally landed at Cape Adair, and built their hut close to Borch Grevink's old winter quarters. The ship returned to New Zealand under Pennell, came back to the Antarctic a year later with further equipment and provisions, and again two years later to bring back to civilization the survivors of the expedition. The adventures and journeyings of the various members of the main party are so numerous and simultaneous that I believe it will help the reader who approaches this book without previous knowledge of the history of the expedition to give here a brief summary of the course of events. Those who are familiar already with these facts can easily skip a page or two. Two parties were sent out during the first autumn, the one under Scott to lay a large depot on the barrier for the polar journey, and this is called the depot journey, the other to carry out geological work among the western mountains, so-called because they form the western side of McMurdo Sound. This is called the first geological journey, and another similar journey during the following summer is called the second geological journey. Both parties joined up at the old Discovery Hut at Hut Point in March 1911 and here waited for the sea to freeze a passage northwards to Cape Evans. Meanwhile the men at Cape Evans were continuing the complex scientific work of the station. All the members of the main party were not gathered together at Cape Evans for the winter until May 12th. During the latter half of the winter a journey was made by three men, led by Wilson, to Cape Crozier to investigate the embryology of the Emperor Penguin. This is called the Winter Journey. The journey to the South Pole absorbed the energies of most of the sledging members during the following summer of 1911-12. The motor party turned back on the barrier, the dog party at the bottom of the Beardmore Glacier. From this point twelve men went forward. Four of these men, under Atkinson, returned from the top of the glacier in latitude 85 degrees 3 minutes south. They are known as the First Return Party. A fortnight later, in latitude 87 degrees 32 minutes south, three more men returned under Lieutenant Evans. These are the second return party. Five men went forward, Scott, Wilson, Bowers, Oates and Seaman Evans. They reached the Pole on January 17th to find that Amundsen had reached it 34 days earlier. They returned 721 statute miles and perished 177 miles from their winter quarters. The supporting parties got back safely, but Lieutenant Evans was very seriously ill with scurvy. The food necessary for the return of the Polar Party from One Ton Camp had not been taken out at the end of February 1912. Evans' illness caused a hurried reorganisation of plans, and I was ordered to take out this food with one lad and two dog teams. This was done, and the journey may be called the Dog Journey to One Ton Camp. We must now go back to the six men led by Campbell, who were landed at Cape Adair in the beginning of 1911. They were much disappointed by the small amount of sledge work which they were able to do in the summer of 1911-12, for the sea ice in front of them was blown out early in the year, and they were unable to find a way up through the mountains behind them onto the plateau. Therefore, when the Terra Nova appeared on January 4th, 
it was decided that she should land them with six weeks sledging rations and some extra biscuits pemmican and general food near mount melbourne at evans coves some two hundred and fifty geographical miles south of cape adair and some two hundred geographical miles from our winter quarters at cape evans late on the night of january eighth nineteen twelve they were camped in this spot and saw the last of the ship steaming out of the bay they had arranged to be picked up again on february eighteenth let us return to mcmurdo sound my two dog teams arrived at hut point from one ton depot on march sixteenth exhausted the sea ice was still in from the barrier to hut point but from there onwards was open water and therefore no communication was possible with cape evans atkinson with one seaman was at hut point and the situation which he outlined to me on arrival was something as follows the ship had left and there was now no possibility of her returning owing to the lateness of the season and she carried in her lieutenant evans sick with scurvy and five other officers and three men who were returning home this year this left only four officers and four men at cape evans in addition to the four of us at hut point the serious part of the news was that owing to a heavy pack the ship had been absolutely unable to reach campbell's party at evans coves attempt after attempt had been made without success would campbell winter where he was would he try to sledge down the coast in the absence of scott the command of the expedition under the extraordinarily difficult circumstances which arose both now and during the coming year would naturally have devolved upon lieutenant evans but evans very sick was on his way to england the task fell to atkinson and i hope that these pages will show how difficult it was and how well he tackled it there were now that is since the arrival of the dog teams four of us at hut point and no help could be got from cape evans owing to the open water which intervened two of us were useless for further sledging and the dogs were absolutely done as time went on anxiety concerning the non-arrival of the polar party was added to the alarm we already felt about campbell and his men winter was fast closing down and the weather was bad so little could be done by two men what was to be done when was it to be done with the greatest possible chance of success added to all his greater anxieties atkinson had me on his hands and i was pretty ill in the end he made two attempts End of introduction, part three.